So Money episode 1583. Paul Ollinger, comedian, author, and host of the podcast Crazy Money. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. The, the fear that drives me to do stand-up comedy as opposed to remaining in the corporate world where the benefits would be far more quantifiable and identifiable in the short run. The fear is that I will, is the fear of the deathbed. You know, I don't want to ask what if on my deathbed, the, the metaphorical deathbed, presuming we have one to, to sit on for a few days or years before we, you know, take our final uh, departure. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. I'm sitting down today with a So Money alumnus. Paul Ollinger was on the podcast pre-pandemic. He's a writer, comedian, and podcaster, host of Crazy Money. Highly recommend. I was just on his podcast talking about the fear of money. Paul retired at 42, and he found himself bored out of his mind. How he got retired was, well, he worked at Facebook and got a nice little nest egg after they IPO'd. And that's when he decided I need to do something different with my life. And that is to become a comedian and a speaker and a creator. Paul is the host of Crazy Money Podcast, where he explores the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning. He's had on Nobel Prize winners, Heisman Trophy winners, Olympic gold medalists, comedians, celebrities, academics. We discuss life post-pandemic. How has the comedy world, how has his material and his approach to work changed over the last few years? What happens when you what happens when you become an overnight millionaire as Paul did and many of his colleagues at Facebook and the secret to success on social media which I'm still figuring out. Figure it out with me on Instagram at Farnish Tarabi. In the meantime, here's our good friend Paul Ollinger. Paul Ollinger, welcome back to So Money. Thank you Farnoosh. it's lovely to be here. Do you remember the last time you were on? I looked it up. It was 2019 October. We had no idea what was about to hit us. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Isn't it funny when you think about that? Like I I just reposted a picture of my son from nine years ago and I looked at the date and it was the day before my mom died and I had no idea she was going to die the next day. Oh my gosh. You, so who knows what we have in front of us right now? <laughs> well, that's kind of where I wanted to start. You know, last time we were on, it was the before times and- We had just been introduced to one another. I was obsessed with your work. I still am. As somebody who left the corporate world, you were in Facebook, you were at Facebook in there uh, as a sales leader, left to pursue comedy and corporate events all over the country. You've written a book. You should totally get an MBA. (laughs) And uh, I, I remember we talked a lot about the economics of comedy, your pivot, your podcast, by the way, Crazy Money is also, everybody should check it out. You incorporate so much humor in that show. But what I love is that you also tackle hard things like financial loss. And you had me on your show. We talked about financial fear. How has the pandemic in some ways reinforced slash changed some of the ways that you think about your approach to the work that you do at this intersection of money and levity? Well, as a comedian, the pandemic was not good. 
I was, uh, in 2019, I headlined Caroline's on Broadway, West Side Comedy Club in New York City. I had a meeting set with the New York Comedy Festival on March 20th, oh. uh, March 17th, 2020. So things were really headed in the right direction. <laughs> and then everything stops for a year and change. And, you know, comedy is all about momentum. Entertainment's about momentum. And so I lost a good deal of momentum. And, and I, I did spend a lot of time working on the, on the podcast during the pandemic. But now that it's back, you've got to kind of rebuild things brick by brick inside the comedy world. I think in general, you know, um, we're still talking about people going back to work. And we're three and a half years past when the pandemic started. So clearly the way we consider work as a part of our lives has been changed maybe permanently. And I think generationally, certainly um, the pandemic has changed the way Gen Z uh, uh, relates to work much differently than Gen X, my generation did. So um, maybe a good reminder that nothing is permanent mm -hmm. in this world and that we should uh, embrace every day and that we should try to set ourselves up for a life where when we wake up in the morning, we're excited about what that day holds for us. Were there silver linings for you between 2020 and 2022, I suppose? I, I hear a lot from those who were in the entertainment field, the creative space where, and even now with the strike, I think <clears throat> that you're hearing about this, a lot of the the folks in the, that have been affected, like, I need to make my own stuff. I need to I, become more accountable for my own paychecks. <laughs> how has some of the, how are some of the, the hard lefts or the hard rights that you did took in those years turned out to be the MO now for you because you kind of like liked it or it worked out? You know, I think it, it's not like that things are good or bad um, in terms of the way the entertainment business works now. It just is what it is. Um, and I'm, I'm not commenting on the writer's strike and the power of the streaming services or anything like that. That's not what I do. Not really. But, uh, I, I mean, in terms of the production of television shows, um, but what's clearly different today than it was as we were going into pandemic is that the most important influencer, the most important gatekeeper in the comedy business is the algorithm. It's not the person who books the tonight show, Michael Cox. I love you but the algorithm is more important than you are. It's not the person who books any one club or any chain of clubs. It's the algorithm. Because if you can amass a following on Instagram or TikTok or uh, Facebook, you can put butts in seats for live events. And if you can put butts in seats for live events, you control your future. If you're depending on the clubs to introduce you to an audience, you're going to be, you'd have to work for 50 years to try to make that happen. So... Um, today and, and the, you know, even though I worked at Facebook, creating content for social media isn't really intuitive to me. And the people who have figured it out, the people who have said, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to do my dances on TikTok or I'm going to create content for for TikTok or for Instagram. They've in, in many cases have been well rewarded. There's a woman I had on crazy money a few, uh, a few months back named Leah Rudick. 
Oh, I know Leah. She came you on my show. I, oh, she I, did? I fell in love with her comedy. I was just a- That's easy to do. That's easy member. to do. Yeah. She's so funny. She's such a- She's she's beautiful and she's crazy and she does these characters. Yes. And you look at these characters and the characters are so creepy. You're like, how is this person doing that character? But yeah. she does the wealthy woman character. I love that one. Yeah. And it's so funny that she's she's created this character who's a woman who's so wealthy. She has- uh, She's totally clueless about how the world works. And so wealthy woman goes to Waffle House, wealthy woman goes to IHOP <laughs> Vegas, or whatever. Yeah. They're so funny. And so she's she's put together half a million followers on Instagram and on TikTok. She's selling out clubs all over the country because she's used the platform and she used the platform during pandemic to create an audience for herself, a following. Wow. Perfect example of someone who created their own opportunity. Um for somebody who's 54 years old like me, I'm still figuring it out because these are not the platforms. on. I want there to be, Farnoosh, I want there to be an email-based social media network. <laughs> I want to be able to, I want, to, I want a place where I can send Phone you an directory. email. That's right. And we can use bullet points and italics, well-formatted, well-reasoned, well-written emails, and the best email gets half a million followers. That's my, that's my kind of social media network. I really hear you. And the challenge with the algorithm is that it changes all the time. It and does. I don't want to be dancing on TikTok. I just, I have integrity. Well, you know, I've- <laughs> I like I, money I, too, though. And so there's where the conflict sits. I feel that you have to figure out the way to tickle the algorithm, mm -hmm. you know? And and so, and unfortunately, well-reasoned conversations between intelligent people doesn't get a lot of play. It doesn't get a lot of play on television either, right? I mean, right. It, that's the forum of public media or public radio and podcasting. And yet that doesn't, you know, we don't tickle the algorithm. And as a buddy of mine put it to me, he's like, you can hate the game, but it's the game that's being played. Mm -hmm. And you can either play it or not play it. And if you don't play it, you're not going to get any, you're, you're not going to build a following. So you know, congratulations on falling on your intellectual sword, but, um, this is, this is where the game is yeah. and you can, the way I kind of think about it is, Hey, look, this is a new, this is a new, uh, canvas and we all need to learn how to paint on this canvas. Mm -hmm. And it, that doesn't mean you have to do what everybody else is doing. It means you have to find a way to be you, how to use this platform authentically in a way that doesn't make you want to quit. Mm-hmm. Last we spoke, though, you were talking about how you're cornering the corporate speaking market, which not a yes, lot of people do. Yes, cornering it, Cor do. like cornering. like the hunt, like the hunt brothers cornered the silver market, Farnoosh. <laughs> but I want to talk talk yourself up a little bit. I, I think you're doing great. I love your podcast. Again, again, Leah's doing it her way. She's wealthy woman on TikTok. That's not what you're going to do. But tell That's us right. what tell us what you are doing. Well, I'm doing the podcast, which mm -hmm. I, I I can't stop doing it. I can't I can't quit the podcast. I probably you know like it it. The, my problem is I have two brands. I have like the podcast brand, which is the money brand. And then I have the comedian brand, and I'm trying to figure out a way to bring those two things together because they're not terribly complementary. I do do a decent bit of public speaking. I spoke at Coca Cola about. Um, how perfectionism has kind of led me down the wrong path in life and how I need to, how, how embracing the imperfect is actually a, a very positive thing. I've spoken to the Young Presidents Organization several times about, um, you know, uh, what's next, uh, how to find meaning in life after you hit that number that you have been working toward for all these years. Because the process, what, what really led me to start Crazy Money was working at Facebook and being very fortunate and getting, you know, stock early and being able to have all of a sudden 
immense financial freedom in my early 40s. And because I did that, I kind of got, I, I quit my job and I sort of just sat around for a year. I mean, I had a great time up to a point. Then I realized, wait a minute, I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do today. We need work. We need purpose. We need meaning. But you don't know that until you actually have the opportunity to not work. And then you go look back and you go, you know, work, there's a lot of good stuff about work. I liked my colleagues for the most part, you know, mm-hmm. we, sometimes we, we fought, but you know, I liked my colleagues. I liked being, I liked being a guy in a network, sorry, in an industry and, and the, where I had built up 15 years of credibility and skill and knowledge. That was a good thing. And you don't realize what you're getting from work besides a paycheck until you quit and you don't have the, the belongingness and the self-esteem to pull words off of Maslow's hierarchy, that work provides you. And so that's kind of the insight that I want to explore. That's what led me to start exploring the connection between money, happiness, and meaning on Crazy Money. And I've almost 200 episodes now, which is nothing compared to you, I know, but I'm doing, I'm trying to do 40 episodes a year. And I've talked to everybody from LL Cool J to Judd Apatow to uh, I'm, it looks very likely that I'm going to interview Ed Begley Jr. next week. I've talked wow. to really, really fun, interesting people that I never would have gotten to, to meet if it, if not for the podcast. What's your pitch when you reach it? Cause I, I need to, I want to get some more big names on this show and I, we can some. help each other. We can, we can refer each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I go to, I'll often go to NetGalley to see who's got a book coming out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a great source to understand um, uh, who might be open to talking because, right. you know, most people want to pitch a book. Sometimes they're like, look, he's the, the author's doing five podcasts and it's, you know, the five biggest ones, right? So I'm not going to get a shot. Yeah. But sometimes there's this sort of second wave after a book has been published, like three months down the line. They're like, why isn't this thing selling? I need to do more podcasts. That's where I swoop in. <laughs> and they're like, you've never heard of me, but here's who I've talked to. And the pitch is basically, I'll read your book, number one, which most people, you know, most interviewers don't really understand the book of the person they're talking to. And so we'll have an intelligent, informed conversation. Uh, Two, look at all the other people that I've spoken to. And uh, I was very fortunate to have Dr. Drew and Ron Lieber from the New York Times in my first four episodes. So I had, I like built good Mm -hmm. credibility. And Mm -hmm. if nothing else, that means that, hey, people of a certain level of respectability are showing up and Paul's not a complete moron. So why not take a chance and, and, and have a conversation with him? I personally had a great time on your podcast and and thank you for reading my book, which uh, is not a small, t- it's not a small feat, especially, uh, I think you're better in a pretty quick period of time. I enjoyed and getting to know you. I, I liked you. learning about your childhood. I, I think about little Farnoosh and yeah. what it must've been like. <laughs> well, who, well, who was little Paul? I want to know. And I also oh, want to wow. know, I also want to know, cause you do one of the scariest things, which is get out, you get on a stage and you give talks mm. and you, you perform comedy and Later, I want to ask about how you harness fear in your career. But what was a, I don't know if we got into this on the first podcast we did now three, almost four, well, four years ago. We didn't mm. talk about little Paul. What was, what were Paul's hopes and dreams? Paul. Yeah. These two up. things are, these two things are totally related. And, you know, most comics are either, you know, trying to make up for or run away from their, their childhoods. I had a very good childhood. But it was a little bit crazy. I was one of six kids in a big Catholic family in suburban Atlanta. 
And uh, I'm still tight with my brothers and sisters. My parents stayed together for 55 years until my mom died nine years ago, uh, three days ago. And so, um, but there were always a lot of people in the house. It was crazy, a lot of activity. And I think I was the fifth. And so I think I always wanted more attention. I joked that my parents never took pictures of me except for insurance documentation purposes. Passport. (laughs) <laughs> passport are you kidding me i never left the country until <laughs> until i was like 16 or 17 uh which is still uh reasonably early i guess but it's in contrast to what my, my son's going to camp in iceland next summer and i'm like Whoa. i flew to st louis what? one way on eastern airlines in seventh grade these oh kids are God. having a great <laughs> they're traveling all over the world but um my, my you know we we were a pretty tight family we all played sports um none of us you know were were amazing athletes or anything but i think the desire the, the the desire to stand out at the dinner table and get airtime at the dinner table was sort of a a defining experience in my life and i did plays in high school and but i always i went to college thinking you know i'm going to college to get a good job because if i get a good job then there'll be financial stability and my parent we had everything but but my parents are depression era people and they were depression era people. And so money was always tight. It always felt like money was tight in our house. And so I thought, well, if I get a good job and I make enough money, then I'll never worry about money, which is a hilarious uh, myth, by the way, um, because you can make a ton of money and still be worried about it. You can make a ton of money and still be broke, as I'm sure you talk about on your show a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and you can, you can make a lot of money and still fight with your spouse about money. And that's one of those things that people think, hey, I'm going to make some money so all my problems will go away. No, it's just different problems, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I went to business school because I wanted to make more money. And I told jokes at a talent show there one night. And that's when I got bit by the comedy bug. And ironically, I found out I wanted to do comedy at a you know fancy business school. And so, but I, but I had loans, I had $80,000 in loans in 1997. So I, I was like, well, I got to go get a job and pay these off because that's what people used to do is pay off their student loans. And, uh, so I got, then then I went into the digital media industry and eventually kind of wove back and forth between comedy and digital media until nine years ago when I started comedy full time. And you all can listen to that link, uh, listen to that episode of Paul and I talking about his beginnings and... Oh, you said something interesting, which is that, you know, when you kind of cashed in on your Facebook stock, um, you had sort of this, you know, fun year, but then kind of like an existential moment where of like, what is this all for? What am I mm-hmm. doing? What were your colleagues like? Like if you had to categorize, like there were three types of people when they became overnight rich, you know, there was the person who blew it all. There was the person who had an existential crisis and there's a person who <laughs> pretended like they were still poor, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. but what, if have you thought about that? Have you reflected on that? What, from, as far as like your, your former colleagues, like where is everybody now since that big, that big cash in? I think everybody's doing different things. I, and a lot that informs this is one, I was on the business side of Facebook. So I didn't know a whole bunch of the engineers, the engineers who tended to be younger also, which I think, I mean, I was 40, 42 was relatively old at Facebook back then. Today it's a, you know, much different company. The founders are almost right. 20 years older and, um, and there's a broader selection of people there because it's, I don't know, 30 or 40,000 people. I can't remember what the net of the layoffs is, but um, you know, some people are still working, some people retired, some people, um, uh, changed industries and are doing something completely different like me, I guess. 
Um, and there are uh, th there are, are ways that we communicate to say, hey, how have you navigated this or that? But there's also a broad spectrum of outcomes. You know, some people made a couple million bucks. Some people made a couple hundred million bucks. Whoa. Very, very different outcomes. And so um, there's just, uh, every, you know, I moved from Los Angeles to Atlanta. Rich in Atlanta is very different than rich in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's um, just kind of doing their best to navigate what life looks like on the other side of a, of a, you know, a windfall. I'll never forget reading. It was in New York Magazine. A woman anonymously had written about how she had. It was during the pandemic. A lot of tech companies were thriving, booming, IPOing, and she earned nine million dollars. I think she was like employee eleven or something, and she felt so gross. Weirdly, I thought it was weird. She said, "Well, you know, I'm suddenly this rich person." And it's so weird. My parents are kind of uncomfortable because I'm richer than them now. And it kind of just really unveiled so much of her childhood trauma around, you know, her relationship with her parents. And right. um, she wanted to give it back. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think that's one of the call me, please. I don't yeah. think this, this is that's one of the instincts, though. That's in the, and it, you know, that's not a healthy instinct. To, no. to, it, it, an instinct, a healthy instinct would be, okay, I have this thing. What, what does it mean to me and how do I use it to help me live the best life possible? Mm -hmm. Now that might mean giving a certain percentage, even a meaningful percentage, maybe half of it away to causes that you really care about. But I think people, you, you know, I, I have had experiences where you think that philanthropy is just writing a check. And that when you write that check, somehow it's going to make you feel fulfilled. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. And when you get involved with organizations, you think, well, this organization's doing the work in the world that needs to be done. And then you get involved with them, you go, eh, maybe, maybe it's actually not doing what I thought it was doing. And maybe giving away my money isn't going to be as soul cleansing as I may have thought it was going to be. And so... We've started, we took a much more methodical approach to it and started to say, hey, you know, th this money needs to last. If we're going to be, if I'm going to be in the creative business, we need to act as if there's no more money coming in. And so, for example, our philanthropic budget is the same as the other, as the other budgets. No matter where it goes, if it, if, if it goes out the door, it's not coming back. <clears throat> so how do we plan our philanthropic, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. How do we plan our philanthropic uh, expenses, you know, over 25 years in the same way we think about housing and education and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so it, it is people, the, the experience of making a meaningful amount of money isn't what people think it's going to be. And it doesn't make your life perfect. It doesn't make you perfect. In some ways it heightens your fears and insecurities and your bad habits. And, if you, but if you let it, it can strengthen those things. It can make mm. you more purposeful. It can make you more mindful. It can make you ask the questions that maybe if you're just working every, if, if, if the paycheck's coming in and things are pretty good, you're not stopping to say, what are we doing with this money? And is it really going where we want it to go? Right. Um, because if you're, if, if you're, if you're wise, when you start making this money, you know, that you got to sit down you got to, you got to make your estate, you got to put your estate documents together. You got to put your trust together so that you don't end up giving your kids millions of dollars when they're 18 years old. 
And you have to say, well, what do we really want? What's the purpose? What's the idea? How can we best best use these funds to live the life we want to live, but also to help other people maybe change the, tra- the trajectory of their life? It's that healthy panic that I love to talk about. But what is, <laughs> <laughs> what is a... How have you harnessed fear, whether it's in your career, in your financial life? I don't know if you had any of these sort of fears that you talk about related to the windfall, but um, I'm just curious. I'm kind of throwing back your interview with me to you. You asked me a lot about my fears. I want to know about your fears and maybe the good ones that have helped you. I I think the the fear that drives me to do stand-up comedy as opposed to remaining in the corporate world where the benefits would be far more quantifiable and identifiable in the short run. Um, The fear is that I will, is the fear of the deathbed. You know, I don't want to ask what if on my deathbed, the, the metaphorical deathbed, Mm -hmm. presuming we have one to, to sit on for a few days or years before we, you know, take our final uh, departure. The, my thing was, I know I love making people laugh on a level on a deep, deep level. And once you're bit by the comedy bug, you don't, or, or whatever bug it is, you know, wh- whether it's writing or cooking or any kind of artistic thing or helping other people, what, whatever that thing is that puts its claws into you, it's probably not going to let go. Now, there might be different ways to satisfy the Jones that it creates in you. <laughs> and public speaking is not quite as fun as stand up but it's it's still it's still pretty darn fun pays and better <laughs> pardon me it pays a lot better in the beginning in the beginning i had yeah. a pretty good cor- i had a pretty nice corporate gig last night but um uh-huh. but but uh uh but there's just something visceral about comedy that live connection between you and other people in live events um and i want to talk about live events before we get off um, there was an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal about how much people are spending on live events and concerts and stuff like that. But yeah. to finish the answer on fear, like I, I didn't want to be on my deathbed to think what would my life have been like if I had actually honored that feeling, that authentic drive inside me to say, this is a direction you should walk. And if I, if I didn't walk down that path and instead went the other safe path, what Stephen Pressfield and the War of Art calls shadow careers. Even if I were a talent manager or owned a comedy club, I was close to it, but I wasn't really doing that thing. I didn't yeah. want to, I, I didn't want to think, gosh, what, what could have happened if I'd followed that all the way down? And so that's what I do. And it's fun and it's great. And I wake up, we might've talked about the laptop test or the, what you can call the phone test. But when you wake up in the morning, you look at your phone, are you excited about what you're going to see when you open it? Or are you dreading what are you what you're going to see? And if you're yeah. excited about it, if you're interested, if you're curious, it's a way better way to wake up in the morning. Ah, oh, you're making me think. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I. What do you? What would you rather do than what you're doing? I you're love like, what I do, but I think that with this book and everything, I want to I want to take the book Healthy State of Panic and find some adaptations of it. Maybe there's a play. Maybe there is a series on TV. I don't know. I feel like wanting to pursue more things in the entertainment world, but no, I want to have agency. I want to have control because I see how it can be just so destructive and like so silly sometimes trying to like wait for them to decide. I mean, I've tried, I've done a lot of television. I know how that world operates and it's not for the faint of heart. And I think like, I feel now that I have 
some foundation. I have some savings. I have a body of work. You have a platform. You have a non-trivial platform. platform. Mm. So, but here's so here's maybe the good part of social media that Mm. um, is that you can use your social media uh, as as a as a pilot, right? You can go and 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 you know what? Farnoosh's fear index or whatever it is. It's like Mm -hmm. I I don't. It's an the openness of the tower. And by the way. one of my favorite interviews was with Barry Schwartz, the the author of um, The Paradox of Choice, meaning, you know, the more choice you have, the more petrified we are about making an actual choice. Right. Right. And so that's one of the scary things about social media is it's a blank canvas and you can do anything mm-hmm. as long as it's in a vertical oriented format. Right. So, uh, <laughs> which is another whole thing, but like, 16 you know, you by can nine. do whatever. You can do whatever you want in this format and you can test any idea you want and you'll get immediate feedback as to what resonates and doesn't. And if you, right. you know, stumble on to like what Leah Rudick stumbled on, you, you know, that's how you go to NBC or, you know, fill in the name of network and you determine the the the, the nature of the relationship because you've proven that there's an audience for this stuff. Zone not that it's guard. easy to, not that it's easy to figure out, but that's kind of the, you know, well, it's it takes the middleman out. You don't have to wait for the executives to call you, which was sort of the the nineteen nineties way of, of doing things, and even maybe five years ago still. But now, why won't have- Scott Sasso return my phone call? <laughs> right, um, but uh, just to to one more example of that, and then we'll go to the live event stuff. But you know, Zarna Garg is another comedian. I don't know if you've, she's been on your podcast, but she's a woman who, in the pandemic. Um, really took off because she went on TikTok and started doing comedy. Prior to that, stay-at-home mom. Prior to that, mm. a lawyer. And always, again, was that funny woman in her family. And she and I, were, she's been on the show. We've become friends. And she's like, you know, this this whole writer strike has made it like everyone's afraid because for her, she had some deals on the table. She had some adaptations. She had a Netflix show, potentially all the things that went kind of dark because uh, of the writer strike and the Hollywood strike. And so she said, you know, at my job right now, what this fear is telling me is like, I got to continue to stay relevant. And the only way I can do that is just keep doing what I'm doing on the on my existing platforms. If I want to sit calm down the road, well, I basically need to start doing that on my Instagram. Totally. hundred percent. You know, she's, you see her family all the time. It's like reality TV on her Instagram. And I have to give her a lot of credit because it is, by the way, a lot of work. It's a full-time job. Constantly. It's a, it's two full-time jobs. So it looks easy. Y'all make it look very easy, but we know behind the scenes, it is a lot of late nights and early mornings. There, there's a lot of work. I mean, you could, as we were kind of chatting before we started recording, you could spend there's no limit to how much you could spend on production and editing and, and stuff for both podcasts and, and production of videos on Instagram. And it's almost like the people who spend the most get the worst results because I, I, the, the, the stuff that really seems to resonate is just people talking into their phones and, and somehow conveying what their life is like or what's going on inside their heads. I mean, Leah's as successful as anybody I've met doing it. And um, her productions are not super high value. They're just really authentic and hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like people who first focus on the website before they actually work on the business plan or the- What's the that called? Bolts. There's a concept to that. What Window is- dressing? Um, I don't know. No, is there's that- a- What book is it? They're, they're talking about- um, 
teaching a monkey to juggle stools or something. <laughs> and he's like, if you, or, uh, if you, if you, if that's your goal and you start building the stool first, you're getting, you know, you're getting it completely backwards mm -hmm. because anybody can build a stool, but nobody can, you know, teach a monkey to juggle or whatever the, the, I, I right. can't remember the, this is concept to say like, you think you're making progress, but you're not because you're focused on the, on the, the non, uh, essential part of, of the transaction. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So, so don't, don't spend too much time worrying about the grand Fonts. production, the grand production, <laughs> right. Just make something, make something that's authentic and funny. Mm -hmm. Just start talking into the camera. I'm happy to hear live events are back. And I think we have Taylor Swift to thank for that. I don't know. I think like, the Taylor, although I was just listening today to, I think it was yesterday on, on NPR, they were talking about it was a culture editor and he was talking about the Taylor Swift halo effect on all mm. sorts of live events. It's why, for example, people are, you know, not why, but it's, it, there's just an enthusiasm to get out. And that's also post pandemic life. I think people just want to get out of their homes. What are you seeing on that front? I think it's exciting. I think the more we can get away from algorithms and just get people gathered <laughs> is that's my, that's my speed. Well, I think that's why comedy is really experiencing a, a resurge. Like a, it was already pushing forward, probably fueled by social media and people discovering comics they like through through Instagram and TikTok. And then the and then the pandemic happened, everything shut down. But it's come back so strong. And um, it, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning about the degree to which it's back, and they they mentioned that there's something like uh, so, uh, five or six acts that have grossed more than a hundred million or multiple hundred millions in tour revenue in a year. And it was like Elton John, Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, of course, being the, the queen of all of them and uh, maybe Beyonce. And it was like, people are getting, the scary part about it, Farnoosh, is that people are borrowing, borrowing money yes. to go to these events. There was, and it, there was another article a couple of weeks back. I can't remember what it was in. But it was about this guy. It was about it was about housing prices and about that people can't afford houses with with the interest rates now. And so this one guy said, "Well, I I know I'll never be able to afford a house. That's why I just spent sixteen hundred dollars on Taylor Swift tickets." And it's like, "Oh, dude, oh, dude, you're going to be poor forever." So it's it's sort of like it's both exciting and understandable, kind of like travel, um, the travel boom as well. But it's scary because people have this sort of like um, you know. Uh, eat, drink, and be defeatist. married. It's a defeatist attitude. So it's, it's psychological. You think like, well, I already have a thousand dollars in debt in credit card debt. What's another $50 sweater? You know, the minimum is only <laughs> going to go up by 18 right. cents. And yeah, I had the same thought when I would see headlines like Taylor Swift boosting the economy. I'm like, yeah, but the tickets are $3,000 and you're in the nosebleed section. Those people not everybody's paying cash. Let me just, I'll, I'm going to make a bet. Not. I'm going to venture to guess that those people are not all paying cash and that the next leg of this story is going to look a lot darker and grimmer. And it was like within a month, it was like America's credit card bills have, have toppled, whatever it was, it, we've reached a record. And part of that is where interest rates are, but I think it's also this irrational spending, a lot of factors I fueling it. You know, people, I do generally talk about people at the higher end of the spectrum on my show because that's been my personal story and, and that's what I always wanted and that's the American dream to get rich. But the first part of getting rich is is achieving solvency. 
And, you know, the richest I've ever felt in my life was the day I paid off my student loans. Mm -hmm. There is zero is the greatest number you can get to. It, 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 it gives you a foundation for, uh, auto for, for financial autonomy and self-determination. And that's what I wish for everybody in this country is to feel that like I'm in charge of my own finances. I can achieve what I set out to achieve. And I don't need this bullshit, you know, that this bling and I don't need, I, I can take my daughter to the Taylor Swift concert movie. She doesn't have to go to the concert and she's going to learn a lesson. I'm going to empower her to make the right kind of financial decisions to, by showing her that there's trade-offs in life and that sometimes you don't get what you want. And I'm sorry, America, but that's part of life. You know, be a grown up. Accept the fact that some people have more than you do. And a lot of people have a lot less than you do, but you don't mm -hmm. think about them all the time, do you? My grandmother used to always say, well, because, you know, the, the, the expression in our culture is there's always another level. So you're just always like hamster on a wheel. And my grandmother would say there's always a basement. There's <laughs> always a lower level. Never forget where you are uh, in relation to, to others. That's the lesson you learn when you make money. Like, so I got to a place at Facebook where I made more money than I ever dreamed of. And I was mm -hmm. like, what else could I possibly want? And then I started hanging out with other people who had this much money. And you know what they have? They have jets. They don't have just one home. They have three homes. They, you know, they don't belong to yeah. one country club. They belong to three country clubs. And it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's basically like, you got to get to a point where you go, I have what I need and I'm living the life that, uh, where I can wake up and like what I do every day. And that's, that's wealth. And, and to some degree, it's a choice to not keep chasing that next level, because if you're chasing the next level, you're going to be doing it forever and it doesn't right. stop. Well, Paul Ollinger, looking forward to having you back. Let's not wait another four years and let's please not have <laughs> another pandemic in between. I appreciate you so much. Your bio, by the way, comedian, podcaster, speaker, that's something to aspire to. I think I want it in that hierarchical order someday too. Maybe I'll squeeze an author is like the second, the second title, but everybody check out Paul. He is the host of Crazy Money. You must subscribe. I hope to see you in person live. Where do you, Farnish, where do you, are you in New York? I'm right outside Montclair, New Jersey. Uh I shall be in New York again soon so we can make that happen. All right. All right, let's do it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Paul for joining us to check out his upcoming shows and learn more about his work. Visit paulollinger.com and he is on Instagram at paul underscore Ollinger. I'll put those links. And if you like this show, please hit that subscribe button. Please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. I pick a reviewer every week to get a free 15-minute money session with me. This is worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And you can get it for free. Just leave a review. I pick one out of the hat every Friday. It could be you. We could be on the phone pretty soon. I'll see you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. So get those reviews in. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money.